So this evening, I would like to uh, continue a little uh, from uh, talking about the tonality and just take the one part where there is this idea of experiencing a tonality where there would be, in a way, more this underlying tendency to grasp or to reject and experiencing a tonality where actually there won't be this grasping, this rejecting, and there will be more a meeting uh, with equanimity, but the equanimity will not come from just remaining indifferent no matter what happened, but more the equanimity will come from deeply knowing, deeply understanding, experiencing what we could call, what is called the three characteristics of experience. And so generally they define as impermanence. Then the second one is dukkha, and generally it has uh, three aspects. One of them is uh, pain. And the third one is generally referred as not-self, or we could call it, some people uh, expand it to emptiness, or some people expand it to interconnection. And so this is actually one of the very fundamental aspects of meditation. That in a way, one of the things we cultivate in meditation is not just anchoring, but it is also what's called as vipassana, which actually means to look deeply. And so in a way, looking deeply can have two aspects. One aspect of cultivation. So we're actually looking deeply, we're actually questioning. And the other aspect, you could say the other meaning of vipassana, could be the effect of that cultivation, which means, you could say, insight. To have an experiential understanding of something, which actually would make a difference in our relationship to the object, to the person, to ourselves. So that's what I, I want to look at this evening is what happens when we really understand, when we really experience all these three aspects of experience. So the first one, I mean, personally, I would say that actually really understanding all this actually would lead to what I call creative, wise compassion. So in a way, this looking deeply is not just, again, to see more, but in a way, by seeing more, by experiencing more, by being more in tune with what is going on, then actually there can be, I would say, more creative, wise compassion. So let's take each one in turn. So the first one is impermanence. So it's what we've been talking a little bit about change. 
about really being aware of change. And why is so much emphasis put on that? Is really, as I said, to counter the tendency we have to fix things, fix ourselves, fix others. And also because when something is intense, due to the level of intensity, we cannot imagine that it's going to stop. And I think that also creates a lot of difficulty. I mean, a very simple example is if you sit in meditation, and suddenly I have one of these myself, you have a itch or something beats uh, you, or anyway, you, you itch on the cheek. And so it's itchy, and generally you scratch it, and it's more itchy, and then generally you put something on it, and then it passes, hopefully. But if you sit in meditation, and you feel the itch, and you just go inside the itch, and when you're inside it, it's so there that you cannot imagine that this so there-ness is going to disappear quickly. It gives you the impression, because it's so there, it's going to last a good amount of time. But if in terms of the meditation you just stay there, just stay with that sensation, and hopefully you're not allergic, and it goes. It's so interesting, that experience, that it was so there, and now it's so gone. And, and so in a way, why we pay attention to this thing is to experience that change. Oh, the intensity itself gave me the impression it was going to last. But if I stay with it, it goes, and it's so not there. So we're experiencing two states, the state of it being there, and what happened with that, and the state of it really not being there. So in a way, that's why when we sit in meditation, I know most of the time not much happens, but even these small changes, we can learn a lot from them. So impermanence has actually two aspects. One aspect you could call ultimate impermanence, basically death. But what is interesting with death for us is that we are not dead yet. And that's very important. When uh, we talk about Buddhism, uh, death in Buddhism, it's not that it's great to die. But more, what is our relationship to this ending? to the fact that at some point our life will end, at some point other people's life will end. And what is interesting about that is actually, unless we're really anxious, a lot of the time this idea of death is really quite far away. Because, I mean, it has not happened to us yet. So, I mean, of course it's far away, because it's not happening to us right now. I mean, some people it might happen more than others due to age, due to illness, but 
it has not happened yet. And so sometimes, the fact that it's not happening to us yet, and you know, things are relatively okay. And although we are a teacher, we are supposed to be in the present, I, people are, are already asking me, you know, 2020, can you do this, can you do that? <laughs> and we're supposed to live in the present. And I feel, yeah, I mean, if I am there, I'll go. But I have no idea. But up to now, I've been able to go. So it kind of, you know, it gives me this, mm, yeah. But what, what does that lead us to do? That's what is interesting. That we start to take ourselves for granted, but more than that, we take other people for granted. And so in a way, to me, this was in a way kind of like um, very, um, you know, where there was sadness, but also there was a great uh, realization when I saw my father die. I saw the last breath. And then I really understood what my teacher used to say in Korea. Your life rests upon a single breath. Don't wait. Be present now. You don't know when it's going to stop. But what happened when I saw that is that by really knowing impermanence in that moment, it totally changed my relationship to people, especially the people I knew. For example, my mother. When I used to meet her before, I met her, but I also met her with the whole history I had with her. But once I had that experience, I realized, hey, her life rests upon a single breath. Can I be present to that person in that moment? And that really changed the way I related to others. And the same to relate to ourselves. Our life rests upon a single breath. How can, in a way, we use this breath to the best of our potential? So in a way, I would say that reflection on death actually makes us more, I would say, appreciate life right now and bringing that creative, wise compassion to it because we know the fleetingness of it. The same way that we can appreciate a beautiful flower, knowing very likely in five days it really won't be like that. But right now it's there in its beauty. And then poof, that's what you have with irises. I love irises. They're so beautiful, they're so weird as a flower, they're amazing. And then within a day or two, poof, they're so different. And so in a way, appreciating knowing that they're going to change, they're going to end. But there is another aspect of impermanence, and it's a fact that there is a potential for change. Change in ourselves, change in others. And to me, this is a gift 
we can give to ourselves and gift we can give to others that at some point there is a potential for change. It doesn't mean that the person or myself is going to change fast, but it means there is a potential for change. And so how do we approach ourselves? How do we approach others? Often we approach someone, you are always like this. You will never change. Or I am always like this. I will never change. I mean, when we say this, we're basically saying, I am going to be like this, he, she or he is going to be like this every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year. But nobody can do that because of impermanence. The fact that you cannot, actually we cannot, we can be stuck in some ways, but we cannot generally be stuck forever. Because generally something comes up, something changes condition, inner and outer. And so in that way, by becoming more aware of change, for example, during the retreat, after that, in a way, to bring that knowledge that when we have a difficulty, when we feel stuck or when somebody feels stuck, in a way, to, to have this generosity of spirit, this creative, wise compassion of knowing that person or myself, I can change at some point. And then, of course, for the Buddha, the question was how by working with the inner and outer condition, can I help that change? Of course. Then there is the next one, and this one is a little more complicated and complex, and it's what often is referred to as dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, and it's generally translated as suffering. And then you often hear that, as Stephen has mentioned, you have these four noble truths, and then the first truth is life is suffering. But that's not what it says, Stephen must have explained it. But what it is saying, in a way, <coughs> is that suffering exists. It doesn't mean we suffer all the time. It doesn't mean it's a good idea to suffer. Sometimes one can, might have the idea the Buddhist thinks it's a great idea to suffer. But it's more, there is suffering. And where does the suffering come from? I mean, that's interesting. I mean, there are many different types of suffering. But in terms of us becoming aware of that quality, here it has three aspects. The first one is because of the impermanence that actually there is unreliability. Can we accept? Can we acknowledge? Can we know that things are unreliable? But actually, if there is two things which go against that. Is the fact that in a way we have a more and more mechanized world where 
especially in the modern industrial world, generally things works. So the more thing works, the more we have this impression things are reliable, which means they must be always reliable and I can always rely upon them. Which then we can also apply to ourselves and to others. I must be reliable. I must always be reliable. They are reliable. They must be always reliable. But we know, however modern, technological, everything, things break down. I mean, we, uh, we live in the countryside. And one of our bugbears is the internet, which for what we do, we use a lot. And so time to time we have little glitches, you know, and you never know, is it you, is it the computer, is it the line? You know, you really don't know. And then the other day, it was totally down. But only us, not the neighbor. <laughs> so you can, you know, where is the unreliability here? <laughs> <laughs> and finally, it was a server, it was a company. But it's interesting these moments where, you know, things work and then, pam, they don't work. And then you really know. I mean, it's interesting because the more you think it's reliable, the more dukkha, the more unpleasant it is. I mean, that's where you get the unpleasant feeling to this should be working. Why is it not working? I mean, France is really good for that. And reliability in the transport system. <laughs> I mean, there's did strike for three months and every month, once or twice I had to go uh, for a scientific study the other side of France oh, that was really a trip and then one time Stephen was going to go to Paris to teach and so we thought we had assurances because we bought both a plane ticket and a train ticket <laughs> and both were on strike. <laughs> so it was like, ah! Unreliability in action. <clears throat> but he managed to get up there. But how is it? You see, what is interesting is that over time, in a way, we get used to think, being relatively reliable, relatively unreliable. But when it's us, it's interesting the idea we have, especially if we aspire to wisdom, to compassion, to be a good person, then we have this impression, this aspiration. I want to be compassionate 150% all the time. I want to be wise and person all the time. And actually you can't be because of impermanence. So in a way, knowing me too, I am unreliable. Other people too are unreliable. 
And often there is this idea, you do it on purpose. <laughs> Not at all. We don't do it on purpose. Because we generally intend to be reliable. But we can't always be reliable. And I know for myself, I do a lot of things by Skype. And sometimes it's really luck of the draw. Like normally I think, okay, today I have to Skype, yes, yes, I have Skype, I have Skype, okay, I know it, I know it, it's my mind, reliable, yes, yes. And then if something happened with my mother, you know, the other day was luck of the draw. I was just three minutes late, but I totally forgotten. You know, talk about reliable, was called. Because I had to do something for my mother and that went. So in a way, to see, we are, time to time, will be unreliable. And in a way, can we know that? Can we accept that? Can we have compassion for that? And the same with others. And then another aspect is unsatisfactoriness. That's a big word. Basically, what the Buddha is saying is that nothing can totally satisfy us forever. But it doesn't mean we cannot have temporary satisfaction. So we're just saying that. But what's there, what we can see, is that it's like we have this, this hope that one thing, one day, will give us lasting satisfaction and then this is it. You know, it could be to have a partner, it could be to have a child, it could be to have a good job, it could be to have a house, it could be to meditate and to be enlightened. And you think this is it, you know, if I meditate long enough and if I have an amazing experience and I am set up for life. <laughs> and I will be in this oceanic feeling forever. But generally not. Generally not because of impermanence. It's not that the Buddha doesn't want you to have fun. He's very happy for you to be glad, to have fun. But it's just to know that it won't last. Whatever it is, it's not going to last. But then, if you look a little underneath, you can also have this idea, which is, okay, I cannot be satisfied all the time, I get it, but I must be satisfying all the time, and other people must be satisfying all the time. Often we have this idea, I, I need to be at this level. I need to be at this level of competency. I need to be at this level of awareness. I need to be at this level of availability, of compassion. I mean, in France, they would say, be zen. This is in the language. You know, like this means cool, calm, relax, be zen. I remember long ago, I was uh, many, many years ago, 
I had an attack of pain and I had to be taken quickly by the ambulance. And it was very painful. It was a little thing down in the intestine who got stuck in a hole. So anyway, it was very painful. And so I get into the ambulance, I'm lying down, and actually their mechanism so that you would not feel the, the ground. There is a mechanism, I forgot the name in English, but that, you know, you, you have that, and so it doesn't do that too much, kind of tap, tap. And generally you have that, so it's smoother ride. That ambulance has lost it. <laughs> so I was in great pain, and it went. And so I was kind of like, and the, the, the ambulance guy was saying, Bizen. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. But you can have that impression. I must be satisfying all the time, meaning I must be like this all the time, to the same degree. But can we? We can't. But can we accept that we cannot? Can we accept that other cannot? And I feel if we can accept that, actually we'll in a way turn it around. Instead of having this impossible idea I must be satisfying all the time. We rejoice when we are. All right. I was good person at the good time. This is great. At times I will miss it. But it doesn't mean that because I miss it at other time, I am not there. So I think this is what is kind of uh, beautiful about that, kind of reflecting on it, working with it. And then the last aspect of this one, the dukkha, is the fact that there is pain. And then it's really referring either to mental pain, physical pain, emotional pain, whatever pain and it's not saying things should be more painful than they are but it's saying how are we with pain and Stephen has already talked about this in terms of the arrow but to me what is interesting about pain and being aware of pain is that if we're really aware of pain if we really know it we actually know two things about it. One, it's painful. And secondly, it's isolating. And if we know these two things, then immediately, I would say, wise compassion arise. Arise because I know you are in pain, but nobody can experience your pain for you. And this is why it's isolating. If I am in pain, nobody can take it from me. I mean, of course, I can take something to uh, painkiller and so forth, but nobody can experience it for me. And so in a way, when we really know pain, I feel that we know it's isolating. We know it's painful, and from that arise this creative, wise compassion. How can I help you? I cannot take it away from you. I cannot experience it instead of you. But how can I be available to your suffering so that you are not 
so isolated within it. Then there is a third one. And the third one, not self. And so this is an interesting one, not self. Because often it gives you the idea that there should be nobody or that there should be no self or worse. There is a dreaded word. Really is a bad guy. Time to time people I hear them talking about it. Ooh. The ego. Ooh. The ego. Ooh. Nasty nasty. It's strange. Uh, people don't seem to want to have an ego. But, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we could function without one. Ego just means I. In Latin, that's it. Doesn't. And I don't know, it's very strange. In our kind of like modern psychological consciousness, it's like ego is this monster in the room that, you know, we must... It's the ego who does all the bad things. And we must get rid of it. And then we can't get rid of it. I mean, that first, because it doesn't exist. I mean, this is a little kind of a problem with this ego, is that it doesn't exist as such, as a nasty, separate entity. There is no such a thing. I mean, what we have, and that's what is interesting, to look at is why am I this I have this body with this mind in its environment. So actually the self, myself, this entity is actually a flow of condition. How about we dissolve ego and everybody talks about my flow of condition. <laughs> Doesn't it feel a little different? Huh? Your ego, I mean, tonality is a little, hmm. Your flow of condition, hmm? what's that? But that's what we are. We are a flow of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. And actually, the beauty of the idea of the Buddha is to realize how these different inner and outer conditions are impacting each other, are meeting each other, are influencing each other. And also how much it doesn't just depend on the inner condition, but as much on outer conditions. So one must be very careful to think the meditation is all about the mind or all about getting rid of the ego. And it's more about discovering the flow of condition that animate us, that encounter other condition, influence certain things, is influenced by other things. And in the middle of that, is it causing suffering or not to myself and to others? 
So it's really about that. So the practice is not actually to 0% self. So then we just become like these transparent clouds, shimmering here and there, floating about, nothing bothering us <laughs> as we shimmer here and there and are transparent to everything. No, it's all these different conditions, how they come together, what happened with them. And that's why it's kind of a lifelong journey because there are so many different conditions. And then some of them we start to see very clearly, we kind of start to see some are really habituated and so because they're so habituated, we have the feeling, again, because it's relatively repetitive, relatively we experience it again and again, we think, hmm, this is me. I am a beautiful person, I am an angry person, I am a sad person, whatever it might be. Yeah, I mean, we might be beautiful, feel beautiful, we might be angry at times, we might be sad at times, but not all the time, to the same degree, in all circumstances. So basically this idea of not-self is really an idea about conditionality, about exploring conditionality. And also I feel kind of in a way dissolving habituation. So you could nearly talk about the habituated self, which is fairly unautomatic. And then you could see the meditation as trying to help us to go more to what, what I would call a creative functioning self, which would actually respond, hopefully, creatively to circumstances. And so in a way, what, what is interesting is to see what can go in terms of habituation. And then the self shifts a little. Before one might have been a person very irritable. Hmm, and now you're much less irritable. So that shifts a little. What is interesting, there is this um, charity working in prison in England. And uh, they teach yoga and they teach uh, meditation. And they're do doing really amazing work for the last uh, 20 years. And so they have a newsletter and then you have the prisoner who send little letters saying how it is for them, the meditation. And what is interesting in these letters is again and again and again, one of the prisoners will say, I never knew I could experience myself like that. So it's nearly like their self shifted. Like before, there was somebody who was either angry, confused, lost, violent, whatever it might be. And suddenly they, they do yoga, meditation, and they experience some clarity, they experience some peace, they experience some compassion some kindness, and they're like, oh, 
that can be me too. In a way, that's what the not-self is about. Is actually the self is not fixed. You could say it's a work in progress. So it can be stuck time to time. But the idea is, how can I shift some of the elements? And how possibly some of the elements are not very shiftable. But maybe I could reduce the intensity. So I think we have to see uh, this dissolution in part in two ways. That sometimes something goes. And so before you were like this, <coughs> and now it's gone. It's like, hmm, oh, well, it's not there anymore at all. And all the time, it's still there. Personally, I think it's either because there is some strength, strong habituation from the past, or there is some physiological element which makes that the thing is more recurrent. <coughs> but what we, one can see is that actually instead of, let's say, being angry or sad or low mood for a week, then it might be for two days, then it might be for an hour, then it might be for 10 seconds. So, oh, it happens because of the condition. Because the tonality is not going to go. This is very important. Again, we're not going for a totally neutral tonality. The tonality is still there. I remember some years ago, I was making a mango mousse. Mm. <coughs> I love mango, so I found some good mango. And I was in my wizards. I was doing my mango mousse, and then I was putting it in little bowls. And then there was some left, but tiny bit, you know, at the end, like left, little sticky. So I leave it here to go there to get the spatula to get the, really the last bit of the mousse, you know. Nothing was left, lost. So I go there, I turn back, and it's gone. And Stephen is washing it in the sink. <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> so for a millisecond, I was... Ah! <laughs> And then I just saw it. And I, and I just let it go. It just went. And I was, it was grateful for Stephen wanting to be efficiently washing up. <laughs> so in a way, you can have. It doesn't mean you don't have the contact. It doesn't mean you don't have the tonality. Of course you have the tonality. But then what do you do with the tonality? So in a way, the not-self is really this exploration. And one of the explorations which, in terms of creative wise compassion, is to really, in a way, uh, reflect on what is my survival dependent upon. Like I am this human being, I am this entity, it is surviving. You are also surviving. What is it dependent upon? It's dependent upon the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, the clothes we wear to protect ourselves, the house we live in, 
to protect ourselves, the medicine we take when we are unwell. These are actually the requisite. Even the monks and nuns have this requisite. Everybody has this requisite. And so in a way, our survival depends on that. But generally, we don't make any of it. The water, the air, the food, the clothes, the housing, the medicine. <coughs> Somebody else makes it. Somebody else dig the ground. Somebody else uses energy so that it comes to us. And so when we become aware of the breath, when we become aware of our life, of our body, our environment, to me, through this exploration of not-self, actually then we can feel connected and grateful for what sustains us. Because there is this huge chain of interdependence, and that's why in a way ecology is important, to take care of the resources, to take care of the survival of the species, etc. Because we, in a way, all interconnected. So that also, when we talk of not-self, this can be a kind of useful exploration in terms of this survival. So I think I'll finish here. And then I wanted um, to take the opportunity to, because there was two notes which uh, I thought would be good to answer. And then, of course, if you have some questions and comments, I can answer them. So there was this question about what is this? So Stephen introduced what is this today. And then the person said an intense and overwhelming, very experienced physically. Is this normal? Actually, one of the ideas of the questioning is to develop a sensation of questioning in the whole body and mind. So actually, the idea is to feel the questioning. So if there is a certain uh, sensation in the body, I would say this can be normal, as long as it's not too intense. But they also say in the practice that we need to balance alertness with calmness. So sometimes if you do the question, you can have a little bit of intensity. And it can be bodily or it can be mental or it can be a little kind of like a kind of a felt sense. And so what is uh, useful is that we can balance this out if it becomes a little too intense with just being aware of the breath or with just being aware of the sound. So in a way, when we present you these different uh, anchor, it's just so that each has a little different aspect. The breath generally is calming, the body is generally grounding. The sound is generally opening. The tonality generally makes you be more in tune with experience. 
And the questioning is generally very, uh, gives you alertness. Kind of, it brings things a little more, kind of gives things a little more intensity. But again, like all things, we don't want to have too much intensity. So then we can balance it out with the breath or just listening. So just so that we can use uh, these different anchors more like tool, like a toolkit. If I need to brightness, then the questioning can be good. If I need calmness, then the breath can be good. Then the other note was actually about the neutral feeling tone and equanimity. So when I see it, I can get very quiet and still and concentrated. And it seems to me that it is momentary and it's like a momentary equilibrium, which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, where everything is at rest and still. Is that what you mean by neutral? It seems to me to be quite a special thing to experience. Are mixing up neutral and equanimity. So, when when we meditate, especially on a retreat, at times we can experience what I would call a quiet and clear state. So we become very quiet, very clear. Generally, you have no thought, but you are very conscious. You are very alert, and. In that experience, generally, there is no reactivity. We just say. So, I would call that state, yeah, equanimity. I would call uh, equanimity based on non-grasping. So I would call this an equanimity which has that quality of neutral, but neutral plus, you could say. So when I talk about neutral, I talk more like of a baseline, just kind of like nothing is happening. And it doesn't have any special qualities, just nothing is happening. So at one level, one could say this is a little similar in terms of kind of like uh, the beginning of the tonality of it. But if it becomes this quiet and clear state, it has a very different felt experience. So in a way, I would not call it a neutral state. It's neutral because not much is happening. But it is more than just neutral because it has some uh, equanimity within it which comes from ungrasping. It's very different to have an equanimity like the Buddha was saying, which is I don't care, nothing is bothering me, to, in a way, experiencing this felt sense of deep peace and clarity. And then, generally, it can veer just a little bit toward gladness, but it's kind of like, you could nearly say some kind of gladness which would be more like contentment. It has a kind of little of that quality. That was uh, my comments on these very good questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.